0: From the moon, planet Earth is a beautiful sphere of blues, greens, and swirling white clouds. It is a seemingly peaceful composition that holds within it everything, quite literally everything, all the people, places, and stories of our existence. How can we decipher all those experiences, all those elements that distinguish us as human beings? And how can we interpret the greatness of the natural world, the effects of climate change, and above all, how everything is interconnected?
1: We tend to think that the world is globalized, but it is not. It is entangled, but entangled in division.
0: Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, will be hosting its 23rd international exhibition next year in 2022. It is entitled Unknown Unknowns, and so this podcast will attempt to tackle some of those vast questions, seeking perspectives rather than answers, our metaphorical vantage point giving us some distance and hopefully some clarity, all from the moon.
2: So it's like, looking at that actual system of conquest, the actual politics, the actual policy, we can do that every day. And every day, daily, banal, on earth practices are still, have yet to be understood.
3: Those in power have no incentive to relinquish power. That's just like throughout history that has been proven. And so we need to ensure that our institutions, our boards, our staff are representative of the communities in which they live. Using the tools and brains from the
0: worlds of culture, design, science, philosophy, medicine and more besides, we'll be taking you on a journey through time, space and knowledge with me, David Pleasant. On this episode two of From the Moon, we are going to examine a divided planet. In the last episode, it quickly became apparent that the peaceful picture of the blue and green planet that we observe is just that, a picture. A beautiful picture that evokes much emotion in all of us. But should we question that sense of collectivity? After all, as much as our guests observe a wonderful natural world that needs to be preserved, they also see a broken planet with many deep cracks... Many of these divisions seem to be growing and the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted them like never before. There are socio-economic divisions, continuing and pervasive segregation based on race, gender and opportunity. Culture itself is now looked at as a battlefield. The term culture war shows how strongly societies are disunited on many fronts. From a period of time around the turn of the millennium, and the rise of information technology, the word global became almost a catchphrase, and many of us used it without knowing perhaps what it meant. So in a world of resurgent nationalism, populism and stark social divisions, how is it possible to think globally? We are about to hear from five very different people that speak to us from two different strands of the cultural sphere those that are very broadly defined as design and art. In themselves, these fields, whether they be architectural design on the one hand or visual arts on the other, are totally intertwined. But there continue to be divisions that separate them both practically and theoretically. If design represents the production of a template or something that can be made for the many, art represents something singular, made primarily by and sometimes for one person. But those theories can be easily switched. The relationship between art and design is undeniably fluid. But maybe the sometimes very political aspect of both these fields can truly unite them. Andres Hackey, who we heard from in the last episode of From the Moon, is an architect and social and environmental campaigner who set up the Transdisciplinary Agency Office for Political Innovation in 2003. Much of his work centres on this very notion of questioning what it means to be global. In April of 2020, at the very beginning of the pandemic, Andres made a short film together with fellow curator Ivan Munera, in which he sought to address the complex nature of what the world was witnessing. It was entitled The Transscalar Architecture of Covid-19. Much has happened in a year, but what those early days of the pandemic revealed must be understood. And in many ways, Andres Hackey's work documents this. Now we hear Andres explain this concept of the scalar.
1: I think politics are now in the way different designs are combined together across scales. Uh, and this is a difference that is difficult to acknowledged uh, by designers, technology developers. Basically, when we look at a tiny piece of design, it's difficult to understand how it has a political agency, how that is part of big political transformations. It's in the way that objects, technologies, uh, uh, services, uh, dynamics are combined together, are entangled, where politics are enacted now. And this is challenging many forms of political control, scrutiny, uh, democracy, because it's very invisible. These connections between different uh, forms of design are very invisible to designers, to users, to audiences, to constituencies, to political agencies. Uh, But it's where the criticality of our lives is embedded. Uh, and that is what we, uh, Ivan Lopez Munuera and I, were wanted to uh, photograph in a way, to picture, to to mobilize and make visible through this movie the Transcolor architecture of COVID-19. Because when you put together all the different pieces, if you when you connect the links, you get something very different than the different pieces alone. When you put together uh the people uh working in the warehouses of Amazon together with those products that people get at home when you put together what's happening in the cell phones of people uh, around the world that are being traced and are being controlled uh as a kind of a, with the excuse to to uh to basically avoid the propagation of the disease uh but then you see what happens what kind of power results from that we start to see how inequality is being constructed. What is the actual footprint, environmental footprint of this disease? How it's directly related to transformations and organizations that happen across the world, the overgrowth of cities. But we need to look at the large picture and we need to develop a way, a collective way to take decisions that take into consideration how things are changed across scales. I'm defending that architecture design. If we want it to be a tool for change, we need to think across scales. The only possibility for political dissidents now is in transscalarity, And transcolarity is the way power is enacted now. Google, Apple work in a transcalar way. The dissidents to these hegemonic powers need to be equally transcalar
0: and i mean you're really tying into what i wanted to now talk um rather than this kind of overview of the planet i wanted to focus on the notion of divisions things that separate us on many levels, these are kind of totally, they're, they're nearly always artificial. There are obviously environmental barriers, as it were, but I'm more interested in these kind of political divisions and these things that humans have, have imposed and uh, seem to have invented to effectively separate us and at the expense of, of some. It feels like your essence as a practitioner and, and the the Office for Political Innovation that you've set up has as a very foundation a want to bring down these divisions or to transgress them somehow. Is that about right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Something very unique of the moment that we're living, it's that everything is entangled. But with with that entanglement, there's so much divides, so much difference, so much inequality. That is difficult to understand because we tend to think that the world is globalized, but it is not. It is entangled, but entangled in division. We can see that very easily in cases like PrEP, uh, the 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 uh, drug that allows people to have sex without uh, getting or, or, or avoiding the risk of getting HIV/AIDS. But that's something that is asymmetrical, even in the most moment, in the most intimate moment of inter kind of bodily
0: intercourse. Here Andres introduces us to the complex notion of entanglement with the case of PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis which refers to the use of medications to prevent the spread of HIV-AIDS in people who have not yet been exposed to the virus. This example of invisible divisions could not be more pertinent right now with COVID-19 vaccines creating a divide between those who are immunised and those who are not. But here Andres chooses to focus on the long-running and yet largely unresolved crisis caused by another infectious disease, the AIDS virus. He goes on to describe how online dating apps, such as Grindr, are perpetuating these invisible divisions.
1: There's a way to embed in bodies an element of asymmetry and divide. Two bodies having sex, one of them could be prevented and protected, from the transmission and the contagion of the disease while the other is totally uh, uh, non-protected. This is very much explaining the entire system we're in. Divisions became invisible and they became embedded. And that is something very different to the social uh, architecture of the 19th century where class, divides were very visible. That is kind of the challenge that we're facing now. That was basically what we were confronting also when we were doing the project Intimate the Strangers that we developed with the Design Museum, uh, looking into grinder and looking at the cracks that could somehow explain how grinder is uh,
0: failing. Further on, on that subject, that, that's really fascinating, these invisible divisions. But if we want to kind of address them, and I think that we have to be careful in some ways because... I feel like it's easy to almost objectify these differences and, and divisions between us, and that becomes kind of reinforcing them. So we can all be focused on having an exhibitions or books and cultural output on blackness, on queerness, on all these kind of separate elements that we feel express these divisions, but then it might just be contributing to a kind of sense of otherness Some guests have kind of picked apart the way that we're looking at the planet, kind of essentially the perspective is all all wrong. We're kind of up here at the moon just looking down. It's a tricky balance, wouldn't you say? And as an architect and as a thinker, can you tell me how we might rethink the world that we inhabit without reinforcing those divisions?
1: Absolutely. This is a crucial question. What you're raising, David, is really crucial. Uh, And it's it's kind of the responsibility of people like me, architects, you know, like identify like architects to intervene and intervene in a way that that those hegemonies can be challenged. The way I see this from the perspective of the Office for Political Innovation is that basically there's a huge need to protect, to uh, empower those that are holding the alternative, those structures that are already Uh, representing forms of dissidence. When we did the project IKEA Disobedience, it was the time of the evictions that followed the 2008 financial crisis. What we did is identified those forms of domesticity that were confronting the hegemony of capitalist uh, transformation of homes into commodities. And there were a huge number of people that were developing alternative economies from their their domestic interiors.
4: IKEA delivers societies. IKEA is a purveyor of social structuration. 98% of the people depicted in the IKEA catalogue are young. 92% of them are blonde. They all have some sort of family life. They either have children or are busy having children. Everything IKEA manufactures is aimed at turning the sphere of domesticity Into a sunny, happy, apolitical space inhabited by contented, healthy young people.
0: Andres told me about the IKEA disobedience project from 2008 and about Candela, an elderly woman who lived in a small apartment she shared with her three children, grandchildren, and many pets in the centre of Madrid. Candela had no money, as Andres says she had no part in the capitalist system, but Candela cooked and cared for many older residents who lived on their own. Andres sees this type of social contract based on an informal economy entirely separate from corporate structures as solutions that are growing in the cracks, and they need active interventions to flourish. So Andres and his team used a parody of the famous IKEA furniture catalogue to bring attention to Candela and others like her. This activism and raising awareness even helped prevent Candela's impending eviction.
4: Disobeying IKEA's injunction to contain social interactions within sunny, apolitical home enclaves is what we propose as an urban counter-notion of the domestic – not a neutral space, but when installing controversy and disagreement precisely at the site where affections may also emerge
1: in this case and others that i could tell you have a have an agency make people or contribute to a network of people to gain an agency for me this is what it's the role of architecture now i only believe architecture can be now a dissident activity it's a practice of being dissident but a uh, smarting up, uh, being dissident, finding the way uh, those powers that we're confronting are operating and from inside, because there's no way out, to get infiltrated using the same tools to produce and to empower already existing tiny cracks, uh, empowering those that are already dissident to those systems.
0: That was Andres Hackey there telling us about some of the projects that his agency, Office for Political Innovation, has developed over the years. Much of his work has been centred on re-examining notions of hierarchy. It also shows an impulse to understand how the world and its socio-economic systems are at once deeply divided and inextricably linked. Andres also touches on notions of subjectivity and inclusion. How we pose a question and look at something is as important as the subject matter. In many ways, it is more important. Our next guest on From the Moon is artist and researcher Candice Williams. Her work has shown an unswerving commitment to understanding the often dark forces of unconscious or conscious control in our societies. Recently, she has been called a deep reader, someone who is annotating where blackness, black women and body politics are all being conceived and regulated by white people. Her work features at the Los Angeles Biennial Made in L.A. 2020, a version at the Hammer Museum. And she has a retrospective at the Institute for Contemporary Art at Virginia Commonwealth University, titled Candice Williams, a field. She has also launched Cassandra Press, a platform for publication and learning. Candice told me about this project, and we also went on to question our from-the-moon perspective and, indeed, much of the way cultural institutions operate today.
2: Cassandra's a really lo-fi platform. Um, I'm going to emphasize lo-fi because a lot of the materials that we gather and disseminate, um, we don't. We try not to engage with many other modes of production other than the copy mm-hmm. copy shop. So. <laughs> In that way, you know, we're a pretty lo-fi production and we've um, we've gone from making like textbooks, readers, artist scenes to now doing classrooms, uh, kids in print, doing more sort of like diverse um, digital and e-publications and um, yeah, and really trying to bring together uh, like a wide variety or plethora of diasporic, uh, black diasporic artists and thinkers in that to, um Yeah, to really mm-hmm. start having more conversations and better conversations, deeper conversations about black intellectual property. Uh, the contribution of black scholars and black um, arts spaces, arts, um, art makers to greater cultural narrativization. And um, yeah, and basically to also sort of center black scholarship so that, um, you know, the blind don't keep leading the blind in this conversation about racial racialized hierarchies and um, marginalization and oppression. So we really wanna center, you know, all this work that that's been happening in the margins for so long um, and center it, you know, realistically and not just rhetorically, center it materially and not just, you know, paraphrase or parable or sequester any sort of new Black thought behind further white institutional paywalls. And that's kind of what we're doing in tons of different ways right now and trying to make that also that information, uh, Black scholarship and, and you know what used to be called black revisionist history um just trying to make sure that that's accessible to um a wide range like a wide demographic of of actual black people and and um you know people who are interested and curious um outside of outside of that demographic to be led by black you know black scholars in these conversations is really important to us
0: yeah i wanted to kind of talk about this episode of from the moon and We spoke before this uh, session, uh, very frankly, and I was going to ask you, we're looking at divisions running through our societies. You've spoken about one such kind of instance of that might be the what you've called the abstraction that is performed by the protagonists of, of whiteness as a means to divide I wanted you to tell me more about this, but I feel like maybe you've got something to say about this concept of looking from the moon. Maybe we should just be staying closer to home. Like, can we just stay on planet Earth right now? And, and what what is it that you see that we should be looking at rather than jumping on the moon, as it were?
2: I mean, I think this goes back to your first questions on what the ethical and moral failures that Cassandra is trying to address, which is essentially that you know we have this whole white Western ontological narrativization that really does conceal the greater, um, like so many of the greater moral um, uh in, impetuses, I guess, that run through humanity. Um, so I think with, with whiteness, with thinking about whiteness, I think of whiteness as, as a means of concealing, as a means of, um, of covering, as a means of a dissonance and creation of dissonance um, and illusion and a real kind of like process of, of mythification. And I think for us, it's really about getting into that what, what that historical and affective myth of whiteness and white domination is, and then also um, you know how it actually creates so much real and material governance almost to the point where you know a, a construct, a racial construct that that is you know essentially um, yeah, like a, a means of conquer, a means of conquest become then the categorizations of our actual experience. And so that's like kind of how we're it's 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 funny, you know, like right now, I think people are really interested in magic, interested in horror, interested in spirituality, because there's this idea that whiteness super or consumes um, so much of our experience that it must be um, it must be otherworldly. Right. And I think that also goes into this idea of, of Earth as seen from the moon, where it's like no whiteness is a politic is a political investment made by white people. In a system that murders daily, you know, that produces genocidal consequences for so many other individuals. So it's like looking at that actual system of conquest, the actual politics, the actual policy. Um, we can do that every day, and every, you know, every, every, every day, uh, daily, banal on Earth practices are still have yet to be understood for the white supremacist dynamics that they create.
0: For Candice, therefore, we are totally missing the point by looking at Earth as seen from the moon. This otherworldly gaze could be seen to express a conscious or unconscious desire to obscure, to distract or even to hide a violent and racist system on Earth. Removing ourselves from the challenges in the world and putting our studio on the moon, even metaphorically, could be a big mistake, argues Candice
2: even the construct of divisions, you know what I mean? These aren't divisions, these are ways that that people who are not white are constantly integrated into financial structures that harm them, discursive structures that harm them, productive means of productions that harm us, you know, um, is by constantly being configured as an unknown frontier and that's like, that's not just my thinking that so many post-capitalist theorists, right? Like the body of the native is the unknown frontier, something to be conquered, something to have a position in. In that way, this earth is seen from the moon is extra insidious because it's now, you know, taking space as a, as a new frontier in order to further ignore and, you know, make into essentially a dissectable labor force um, these, like the people who we understand to be like the most harmed in the pandemic.
0: So how can we improve things? Candice has written and observed extensively on museums and galleries operating in and perpetuating a system of capture. A system with colonial origins that started with the very physical act of looting, raiding, essentially stealing from sites of knowledge to something altogether more opaque in recent times. For instance, where black voices are sought for the sake of representation and inclusivity. She has also talked about treating her own existence in a way as a site of knowledge. So how could a site of knowledge, both in terms of tangible and intangible culture, be both understood by a broad public and protected without being appropriated or stolen?
2: Well, I think one thing is that, you know, white people never ask for anything. So just a first ask is like one way of, <laughs> an initial asking would be cool. Um, can I share something with you versus can I plaff? I really don't like this hashtag amplify black voices bullshit. It's really super stressful as though. And I think that just goes back to this first question too of, of affect and, um, and emotion and the kind of territorial governance that emotion actually sort of, predetermines and materializes, which is like, um, yeah, like thinking, I don't know, thinking about myself as a site of knowledge is, um, is a little bit tenuous, like, obviously, yeah, I run Cassandra, you know, I'm always I have so many, I have a small library, you know, of of stuff, it's ever growing. But I think when I say protecting myself as a site of knowledge, what I really mean is also protecting my position as a black woman and as a black femme body, um, moving through various kind of like infrastructures that refuse to respect the substance of my life, you know? So it's like, it's a really, it's a, you know, it's one of those things where it's like being brought into a conversation about how dynamic racism is and then Experiencing the racism in it and being, you know, like those things are, they have become actually like praxis and knowledge building for me. But what I actually kind of mean is more, you know, understanding phenomenology versus categorization. Like, so understanding like a phenomenon as such, as a phenomenon versus like as a means of categorizing and then governing something. I'd like for my life to be respected outside of a means of control, domination, or governance.
0: That was American artist Candice Williams there and we'll be hearing more from her and particularly about her art practice later. As Candice describes, there is a huge amount that cultural institutions need to do if they are meaningfully and effectively going to change. Another thing that seems clear is that beyond their discourse, there is a need for organisations and bodies that lead in terms of culture to transform within themselves. Economics, wealth distribution and inequality are, as you might expect, vital factors to discuss on this series. Indeed, some contributors refer to the industrial complex, where political and social institutions are intertwined with big business, leaving the majority of the planet's population far behind. Our next guest has a role that could be seen as negotiator of sorts between the worlds of money and culture. As simple as that sounds, the contentious relationship between these two spheres is one that cannot be ignored when looking at the divided planet. Nico Diswani is Head of Culture and Art at the World Economic Forum, which is a non-governmental organisation whose mission is stated as being committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic and other leaders of society to shape global, regional and industry agendas. If that doesn't sound familiar, you might have heard of their quite well-known conference held every winter in the Swiss Alps at Davos. I began by asking Nico about cultural innovation and particularly cultural leadership. Who could or should young people today look to as cultural leaders?
3: When we talk about leadership and leaders, we, we tend to think, uh, I think, uh, you know, of, of business leaders and political leaders, people who make the big decisions that have an influence on our lives. I think one thing that all great leaders or or influential leaders share is that they're able to shape narratives. They're able to bring people into a certain philosophy, create uh, shared norms, shared behaviors, which over time change culture. And I think that if you think of leadership in that way or, or uh, partly in that way, then you see how artists and storytellers are leaders and have, in a way, outsized influence on how we think and how we behave. And so when we think of cultural leaders, we can think of the ways in which authors and filmmakers and and all manners of creative artists are able to create uh, stories and manifest realities, manifest visions that you know, have, will have influence for 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 a generation, sometimes for an entire an entire population to think of itself differently. And so, if you if we think of cultural leadership in this way, then we start to take the role of artists and culture more seriously than than entertainment. Um, so, you know, when it comes to when it comes to young people, um, it it's a good question because there's I think many people have said there's a there's a real crisis of leadership right now. We, from our political institutions to business institutions, um, a lot of people feel that there's a, there's a void, there's a void. And the young people of today, our teens, are the ones who are going to be making the decisions for, for, for tomorrow's world. And so, you know, what kind of role models do they have to guide them as they're making their, their, these decisions? And especially for those young people who, who want to make decisions for the greater good. And I think in this case, we can look to many of the socially engaged artists, those who have created, sometimes put their lives on the line to manifest stories and realities and bring people together in ways, again, that sometimes are even physically dangerous for for them, but that that, uh, creates a new reality and where people of many different cultures see themselves represented. So on that subject of representation
0: of inclusion, I spoke to uh, an American artist on this uh, very show, Candice, and she basically told me that we, kind of as guardians or people in in the kind of institutions, let's say, we tend to get too het up about being racially aware, being kind of stressed about uh, this notion of inclusion. So much so, in fact, that we end up, not fixing things, our judgment gets clouded. And uh, we we end up in this position that a lot of institutions are in right now, perhaps of not moving forward, just kind of nominally being inclusive without affecting real change. I wanted to know if you had any thoughts on how we can begin to fix this in a truly kind of proactive manner, not just kind of saying uh, or or, or looking like we're fixing things, but but doing things uh,
3: properly. Yeah, thanks for that question. It's so important. I think that at the, at the core, there needs to be a, a, a level of representation. Um, you, you, if issues of race and in, inclusion are only philosophical topics, then they become, in their own way, manipulated to suit the needs of those in power. Those in power have no incentive to relinquish power. I mean, that's that's just like throughout history that has been proven. And so we need to ensure that our institutions, our boards, our staff are... Representative of the communities in which they live. I mean, it sounds pretty basic, and some countries are more advanced than others, but of course, it's huge challenge from the bottom up and from the ground down because it is about changing the status quo and there's nothing harder than than changing the status quo and I think when you have a bunch of people who, who talk about these issues who are trying to strategize even in goodwill and with the right intentions but without understanding the life circumstances without understanding uh, or getting the input from people who have radically different ways of experiencing life um, then you can only go so far. I want to talk about strategizing
0: a little bit uh, here, kind of when it comes to investment and economic strategy, it seems too easy to to forget the cultural sector, Uh, at least it's kind of in the back of the line. This year, maybe more than ever, we've seen millions of lives in the creative and cultural sectors kind of being put on hold. Their employment and livelihoods are maybe amongst the most precarious that there are what would you say to other and perhaps more traditional uh, leaders those uh, political and economic what would you tell them you know why is it important to support and nourish the cultural sector
3: i think our sector has been uh, very very much affected i mean it's a catastrophic situation in the cultural field i mean i know many artists who have not had any income since since march and we see all around the world whatever the model of funding whether it's very highly subsidized by the state or not, institutions are struggling, many are closing, and there's just a lot of uncertainty about the future. I think on the one hand, um, we have experienced through waves of confinement how much as a society we've missed the getting together, the the moments of awe and elation that we have when we are at, at the theater, at a show, uh, in the cinema, at a concert. So I think from at the basic level, Uh, people have realized how much it's almost it's one of those things when it's when you when you don't have it anymore that you realize how much how much you you need it on the other hand um, the arts sector i think now needs to change strategy it's no longer about telling business leaders and political leaders at the Arts Matter. I think, you know, I've met many of these uh, leaders at Davos, at many of our events, and they understand, the, in fact, the intrinsic value of the arts. In fact, making the economic argument only goes so far for these folks because they are juggling. They're not actually thinking about the progression, the economic progression of the arts. They're thinking about the decisions that they have to make in comparison to other industries. And when you compare the arts and culture and the creative industries, as great as they are, they pale in comparison to to industry and other places and other industries. So if we are making the case of the value of the arts only in economic terms, we we lose out of course it's a very important conversation it's a very important argument but it cannot be the basis of what this is and i think a lot of these leaders actually understand the intrinsic value um of the arts i think what we need to do in our sector now is on the one hand continue to support each other through this crisis. This is unprecedented for, for everyone, but as you said, maybe even more so for the, for the cultural sector. And it's such a precarious situation, and we're still very much in crisis mode. So we need to make sure that there is collaboration between government, business, artist institutions to support the institutions through this crisis. But moving out of this crisis, we cannot go back to the old model. We cannot go back to the model of the gatekeepers of culture of institutions that are very exclusive. You know, the the cultural sector likes to point the finger at the rest of the world, but it suffers from the very same exclusion and problems of sustainability that other industries do. And if we were to go back after this pandemic uh, with the same power dynamics that we have, uh, that again, the gatekeepers of culture that decide who and what. Is eligible and can create culture, um, then we would have it would have been an ext- it would be an ext- another tragedy uh, to 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 not have been able to seize this moment for us to be on the one hand more inclusive, more diverse, more attuned with, to to local community, rethinking entire models of touring exhibitions, of thinking about uh, the diversity of our own staff and our board uh, of thinking about whether our institutions are really places of creation or only of exhibit, uh, exhibition or exposition. Are we as a field supporting local creativity? And secondly, uh, on the, on the finance financing models of, of the arts. I mean, we, how, how long can we go uh, always advocating for some crumbs and handouts from the government? We have to think we, in a way have to take ourselves a little bit more seriously as a field and, and, uh, think about new, well, they're not so new, but perhaps newer models of supporting culture. I'm thinking of impact funds. There are very few impact funds for culture. There are tons for climate and for education. Very, very few. There are a couple out there that are that are you know supporting that are supporting the arts. You know, uh, guaranteed loans. Uh, a lot of people have been doing some crowdfunding. We have to be more innovative as how we think about the sustainability of the sector. And I think then. As we are in our field more diverse, more attuned to our local community and its needs, as, as we are more attuned to the financial realities of the global economy and how we fit into it, uh, then I think a lot of business leaders and political leaders will listen more.
0: That was Nico Diswani there, who is head of arts and culture at the World Economic Forum. Nico spoke about the need for the cultural sector to be more attuned to the local community and be more diverse. One way in which cultural institutions, large and small, have gone about doing this is by promoting the notion of participation. And this quickly leads us to see the very political nature of the task at hand for all those involved in the cultural sector. Who participates? Should art be for everybody? How do you strike the balance between over- and under-representation of one or other segments of the public? Our next guest on From the Moon probably asks himself these questions every day. Hanru Hu is an art critic and curator. He is also artistic director of the Maxi National Museum for 21st Century Arts in Rome. In this episode, uh, we want to look at divisions. We can talk about divisions, you know, a divided opinion, a class divide, social divisions, systemic racial division, the gender divide, the notion of opposing sides um, is, is perceived everywhere. But I want to know how do you or how can you go about investigating that as a curator?
5: Well, I think this, this question has been, uh, from the very beginning, you know, related to uh, my understanding of, let's say, the mission of art. Uh, you know, what art should do that. I think, um, I don't know if I told you, you know, uh, earlier that uh, I have been very much interested in the notion of everybody's an artist promoted by Joseph Boyce, right? And also the idea of the direct democracy that was really in the 80s, I was, you know, when I was in China, uh, involved with um, uh, contemporary arts, uh, at the time it was called avant-garde, right? Um, and it was already uh, a very important uh, topic for me. And I think it was really a foundational uh, kind of, uh, I would say, positioning for me. So in even in uh, 1989, uh, Few weeks before the uh, Tiananmen Square uh, event, I went to the Beijing University and did a lecture on Joseph Beuys and direct, direct uh, democracy and social sculpture.
0: Here, it's worth going back to those times where Hanru found himself in the feverish socio-political climate of China in the late 1980s. German artist Joseph Beuys, that so influenced Hanru back then, had by that point become known for his radical, although always pacifist, message. Back in 1972, at one of his first major exhibitions, he had set up the Office for Direct Democracy by referendum, and he continued to speak about the reshaping of society through creative activity. On that theme, you are hearing Joseph Beuys himself sing his ever-political message, this time in 1982, with "Sonne statt Reagan," which means "Let's have sun and not Reagan," referring to the then U.S. President Ronald Reagan. In fact,
5: I was translating um, his uh, books, his writings in the Chinese at the time, and in the meantime, for me, it was really foundational to look at you know the relationship, what you know art can do to improve. Uh, not only the conditions of living of people but really the social consciousness of people that they can be a part of you know active part of you know those who sculpt the social uh, situations to build um, the system that they want, namely you know so-called democracy, right?
0: In February 1989, many Chinese artists were questioning the political system, and the China Avant-Garde exhibition at the National Art Museum in Beijing is widely regarded as a pivotal moment in the history of contemporary Chinese art. Provocative and performative contributions such as that of Xiao Lu, where she shot at her own work with a pellet gun, were revolutionary, so much so that the show was shut down just hours after it opened.
4: On the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square, furious people stared in disbelief at the glow in the sky, listening to the sound of shots.
0: The Tiananmen Square protests and violence that Hanru talked about were to happen four months later. Xiao Lu's work at the exhibition has been called the first shots of Tiananmen Square, showing the very tangible connection that can be made between art and political expression.
5: In the meantime, um, I think over the years in um, many condi- uh, contexts, many places in the world I've been involved with, you know, curating exhibitions and and uh, from museum exhibitions to be analyzed, to very private, small projects and so on. But every time for me, it, there's a, uh, let's say, a, a organic relation with this ideal, uh, Concept of you know everyone can be an artist. Of course, everyone can be artist. Also, uh, it's crucial uh, as a a possibility, but not as a given fact. In the sense that uh, uh, there's a possibility for everyone to to kind of raise up his uh, or her self consciousness by embracing something that he or her or she doesn't really know already. Namely, you know, to engage with something that it's out there in a kind of creative way. So that's extremely important to uh, make the distinction between populism and the popular, uh, let's say popularity of art and that it's, very important. So that goes to, you know, almost all the projects I've been creating that uh, there's always a dimension of, you know, engaging with the society, interacting with, you know, different communities. Um, and uh, maybe later on we can talk about a few examples.
0: Definitely. Um, so you're basically talking about, is it participation on the part of the audience or, or society in general? You're always trying to really involve society at large is that how you see you approach this notion of uh, social divisions
5: uh, absolutely absolutely i think that's it's one of the basic let's say um motivations that i think i i feel you know uh i feel you know there's still a value this is a meaning still a meaning to be an artist today i think that makes a huge difference between you know what I call contemporary art and uh, some kind of, you know, uh, art, established art, let's say. But um, in the meantime, it's not simply, you know, to make people particip- participate, but really to help them uh, somehow to become something more than what they already have or they, uh, they are, right? So that's, uh, that sounds really quite uh Traditional is kind of enlightenment uh, 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 action. But in the meantime, I think it's still absolutely necessary, especially today in this very critical moment that society are are facing really a a lot of uh, contradictions of democracy itself. So, how we can uh, avoid certain, you know, danger in the meantime, also to be open right so that's absolutely uh important as a principle
0: yeah. and i wanted to kind of look at that practically and how you might go about delivering that vision and that sort of purpose and principle that you have practically as a curator you know maybe talk us through a show a recent show or one springs to mind in which you looked at uh the street, the notion of the democracy and social implications of the streets of our of our towns and cities. I found that that's the kind of landscape of great importance. Can you kind of recall that show and perhaps talk us through it?
5: Yes, I, I think the street, um, the the exhibition the, uh, a year and a half ago happened in, in the museum, uh, the Maxi, and in the meantime, it uh, after that we traveled to in Montpellier, in, in, in France. Um, this exhibition, actually the title itself is quite interesting. It's called The Street Well, the World is Made. Um, basically, it's to set up a stage um, that, you know, that is the street um, and it's, well, you know, we invent everything. And I think art is also invented in the street, but Um, But in the meantime, this is not an exhibition of a street art, as many might think. Um, But um, it's uh, more about, you know, how all kind of idealist ideas can be invented out of a very down-to-earth conditions and a very everyday context. Um, And based on that, you know, everyone can be creative more than what, you know, repeating what he can or she can see or she does every day, but really trying to uh, go further. Um, So the exhibition is really uh, a very condensed kind of version of street life being uh, brought into the museum with 140 works, something like that. which are every every of this work is somehow you know provocative in its own way from street politics to urban planning to uh community building to uh private life and from you know from homeless strategies homeless is also kind of strategy to make home to how to park a car to you know street protest um and also the questioning of uh, uh, the, the up-to-date idea of the smart city through the you know systematic control of traffic and so on. This rain as a man, the
0: industry, but the
5: all these questions are kind of colliding um, each other and, prov- and and become a kind of you know almost like a, a ongoing laboratory of the most uh, audacious provocative ideas um, and the test. So that that's you know the show somehow you know in the museum it's uh, a very much you know. Uh, uh, trying to bring up this energy, these uh, uh, po- possibilities again of inventing other ways of living. Uh, the street hence subverts the relationship between or the boundary between the museum and the outside world.
0: That was Artistic Director of the Maxi Museum in Rome, Hanru Hu. And we'll be hearing more from Hanru, and how to capture the curatorial capabilities of the world at night time later in the series. Next, we hear more from Candice Williams, and particularly on her art practice, which often centres on collage as a means to express the multi-dimensional and multi-layered nature of her research. There is also a strong connection between her artwork and the Cassandra Press project Candice told us about earlier in the episode.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's a lot. Like, Cassandra really comes out of my art practice. Um, and it's always been, for me, a way of, like, um, definitely, like, inter, integrating language and vernacular, like, theoretical language and vernacular language around my, my own work. Um, I think, you know, whatever, maybe, you know, that's another conversation for five years from now. What, Okay. how it's like kind of coming in and out of each other, but I don't think it's glib to talk about my own work. I am an artist, you know, and I think that yeah. it's important to actually say that I'm an artist who makes discreet, saleable artworks, <laughs> you know, I make saleable artworks y'all. Um, and I'm not a political pundit. I'm not a writer. I'm not an activist. I'm an artist. And I think there's a great capacity in that.
0: It's been a, kind of momentous year everyone keeps saying that but you equate that with constant requests for interviews and and a kind of basically what you're saying is a tokenistic approach to your inclusion in in various programs steering away from your practice and you are an artist so I'm kind of interested in how you think you might be able to kind of swerve the conversation back to your practice and what would you like to see in terms of going forward can we just Rethink how how we are approaching this, and maybe ask people such as yourself to be be artists again. That's you know not not uh, commentators.
2: There's a really interesting and overarching logic to this mythification of black bodies, black subjects, and to this like kind of you know very anti-black policy and legal shifts. And that is that's primitivism for me. I think um, I think for white you know especially white Western and white Western cultural institutions. Uh, to really look at their, to really look at their collecting <clears throat> their collections, to really look at their um, international relationships, and you know to start sort of making uh, amends around cultural um, cultural repairs around primitivism, I think would be a start because I think you know first round of that kind of ideas is, is the capture of so many African and African um, African uh, artifacts and and cultural cultural cosmologies and how they were really captured during the first two world wars. I think we still, as as modern people, understand a kind of like cultural expansion via the absorption and sublimation and then f- essentially annexation of Indigenous and Black bodies. So... I think that's one of those cultural assumptions that we really, you know, that form a lot of the emotional assumptions about the freeness, right, of black anything, about the, the hyper disseminability, the hyper tradeability, the hyper marketability of black anything, right? Like black people have been absent from political and policy making positions, but we haven't been absent from marketing. We haven't been absent from popular culture. We haven't been, ever been absent from the avant-garde. And so I think that's, um, that's something that, you know, a real address of primitivism would look at is like these kinds of abstractions.
0: I feel that there's there's something very uh, translatable in terms of the, the aesthetics of what you've just been talking about. And that maybe does bring us to your practice.
2: For sure. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, for me, it's always been collage. It's always been like, for me, I think the first, you know, first collage artist I I really loved and first painting practices I really loved were doing essentially that that thing. So I feel like I've been invested in primitivism since I started studying art. Um, but now it's kind of like about going behind the canvas or something and seeing what of real life and what of history we can bring out from behind those those mashups. You know, I mean, I feel like there is a real way where I'm just a dialogic thinker, you know, like I don't really see like a binary has never been enough. You know, I think uh, Braca Ettinger is somebody I'm really interested in, too, and her work is on the matrixial border space. So I really I tend to think in matrixes and like I like, you know, I mean, I think that's why collogics can extend to so many different uh, realms or formats or, you know, kinds of thinking. Like when I started being invested in philosophy, I think. That also felt like collage, you know, like just how ideas are passed down, how histories are activated, how even like historical canonization happens. Um, was all just super interested. And, and I think for me, collage is like the way that I can see the front of a of a the surface of a thing and also understand like this, you know, some is not the whole of its parts or the parts aren't the whole sum of the thing. You know, I don't know, back and forth. You know, like I just kind of get that, I get this like sense, you know, that we're all in relation. And so collage is that kind of like space where I can be in relation or be like, you know, relational. And um yeah. And so it's like it's on paper, but it's also now in print and on in our in classrooms and in discussions and in collages and sculptures and whatever else, you know, can whatever else it needs, whatever kind of container we need to hold the things. I like seeing things together. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That was artist Candice Williams there discussing her practice and also sharing with us some of the ways in which many art institutions need to rethink their notions of inclusivity, ways of collecting, as well as much of their own histories. Beyond these physical and material divisions, however, there are ways in which the earth and its human inhabitants are separated, which are altogether more difficult, if not impossible, to see. Separations of time are almost imperceivable. Invisible, yet strictly enforced time zones split the planet into strange segments that often have more to do with politics and economics than with nature. And then calendars use the Earth's orbit of the Sun and the host of our imaginary studio, the Moon, to demarcate the past, present and future. But how do we begin to make sense of the temporality of the planet? And how could that be harnessed? Could time itself be a means to reconsider the grave social and environmental problems that the world faces today? Indian architect Anupama Kundu sees time as a forgotten resource, while architecture is, she argues, a process that embraces the present, the past and the future. With that in mind, she has devised an exhibition entitled Taking Time at the Louisiana Museum near Copenhagen. Constructed as a journey through time, the show explores and integrates traditional Indian building customs, crafts and materials into Kundu's current works. In general, Kundu is concerned with using as few resources as possible in her architecture. She has said we cannot make time, but we can take time. In this episode, uh, we're really trying to examine some of the many divisions that run through our societies, uh, the inequalities that are so, uh, so deeply ingrained uh, from race to wealth and so on. I wanted to ask you, uh, from the point of view of an architect, what in your view has been going wrong in terms of uh, the way in which we inhabit uh, the planet?
6: Um, I'm very happy to hear you use the word inhabit because that's a very architectural word. And I think we often forget that word because we've become part of a large, corporatized uh, and commodified industry where we deliver housing in a very uh, visited, unprecedented or at the way, uh, the the inform themselves. Yeah, so 30 years in the profession, I have uh, been um, very astonished how little we are Reflecting in terms of time, especially uh, given that so many transitions have been taking place so closely behind one another, I mean, we've uh, not only technologies but also our own um, engagement with technologies uh, transitioning from handmade to machine-made, and in all of that. My question is: Is the human being a bit disoriented and lost? Are we really, have we got our goal in mind or are we just lost in the trend in which trends in which we are drowned? That's the question. And um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I have tried to deconstruct certain aspects from that point of view. And I've shared it in that exhibition called Taking Time, which is not about delaying. It's about proactively taking time and doing more with this resource we have as living beings we have we can access our time as a the most important uh, resource that we can s- judiciously spend on envisioning the future we want to have i gone so- totally off the point
3: or
0: no no no, no that's kind of a a really big theme that you've introduced us to because we've kind of been looking at this very kind of simplistic notion of just looking in the current time, in real time, at planet Earth in, in what situation we find it right now. But what you're saying is that we really need to almost kind of look back in time and forward in time simultaneously to really understand what's going on.
6: In the same scale... If you've chosen to look from the moon, in that same scale, the time should be to scale. And you need a kind of time lapse of that goes back to before humans existed, architecture existed, right? In all the other living beings, in the DNA of the cells that have programmed the honeybee to be able to make its own hive, etc. And even beyond that, matter also has been formed over time and we are dealing with that matter and every if we just zoom out and not see the see it through the perspective of time we we won't see the legacy of people before us uh, see as people keep dying they leave behind things they constructed and we occupy those things that's a very simple thing um, uh, we keep getting things things that people have made in their lives whether they are ma- made and used clothes or Uh, stone temples or whatever it is they are not they're going to be there forever the person won't the maker not yeah but the maker also made the next generation of children and they will be there and they will all the things we did on the earth and constructed in the former times because things were good quality or at least they were natural um, we could use them we have all these leftover buildings and we occupy them so what we had to create new was not that much, so it could afford to be of good quality. Now, we are just producing so many in the name of rapid urbanization. Um, I, I would like to ask, are we creating lots of ugliness rapidly, one after the other, high speed? Or do we like what we are creating even? It's a very basic question. I already know the answer, and many people say the same answer. But we you think...
5: we don't like what we're creating
6: we like very small percentage but we tolerate and we even contribute to creating a whole lot of things that we all complain about and we think we are uh, that this is a trend and who are we just a small person but it's not like that you know i really want to challenge all those thoughts because every every micro decision made by every small micro person like can make a huge difference in one way or the other. So even by default, by not doing, we are still doing.
0: And it's good that we talk about the micro, because that was going to be my next question. Somehow steering you away from these philosophical uh, notions of time and so on to something somewhat more practical. If we look at the micro level, how how do we go about practically trying to overcome some of these problems as an architect
6: i, I think uh, various various things come to mind but one of the first important um, interventions i would i mean uh, i would like to provoke some thought about is that okay maybe that there is this rapid urbanization maybe everybody needs a new house suddenly and everyone's moving from migrating and going somewhere and they all need new houses I don't really think so, but okay, this is what we are being told, that that has to be inevitable, okay? The question is, um, uh, is that even if there's such a rapid leech transforming landscape, climate change, all sorts of things, have we, don't you think we need to take even more time to rethink how can we justify that we are in a hurry, so we are going to cut back on time to think before we act. How can anything good come out of this approach? Maybe maybe you want to produce high-speed housing, etc. But to think it through, maybe the thinking time should be increased and then you make a shorter delivery, uh, you know, overall. Or, but you can't start by saying that we don't have time to think. Let's just do, do, do. Look, COVID has come and we are just seeing the alternative scenario, okay, that if we don't just do, 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 of course, there are a lot of issues right now. We are not, we are uncomfortable because our uh, premises are being questioned, but in a each moment to moment way, if we didn't get the actual COVID, you know, things, many things are actually going on. Uh, much more, maybe more some money. time
0: to reflect. People talk about the very necessary and overdue slowing down of people's work processes and and the notion of unnecessary consumption and uh, whether that's travel or, or otherwise. So, really, what you're saying is very much tying into the current situation that we're finding ourselves in.
6: Yes, and I want to now further stress that point. You talked about time, okay so let us come down to something zooming in from earth level and more let's say just 100 years ago not too long ago you talked about inequalities you know i think before before this inequalities i mean diversity was the word used because the same species not only humans they have diversified based on context and environmental stimul- stimulus you develop in one or another way, and you add to your diversity um, through that, you know, that's how nature does it. But now what has happened is, I think this problem of talking about differences, etc., comes from this kind of industrial development, Uh, especially what happened is, the Western thought, and I don't like to use the word Western, actually, but let's say the industrialized the in the countries that have industrialized in a mainstream way uh, today you have two or three generations having grown up in that premise that you produce an over standardized product and repeat it multifold to make it economically payable there are questions which i would like to ask because i know other realities so i'm never taken in by this kind of thoughts okay like such as time is money it is the thing sold you have to cut back on the human's time this is the actual propaganda that was made everything is being uh, attempted to be solved by another new huge development and thinking that some people are going to profit and that it will in some way boost what they call boosting economy look i'm not an economist. But I would like to ask all the economists, like how can it be that this this idea of saving time that we have all embedded, at least when I live in Europe, I see this is the premise. At what cost are we saving the time? At an environmental cost? Now, if you are going to cut back on the human time, human muscles, human engagement, care everything that an individual gives, if that has to be removed for progress, what is, isn't that the reason why we are spending way more natural resources? That we are creating environmental, social, and economic disruptions of this mega scale? And are we not creating? My question is, are we not taking our diversity and creating it into um, social segregation and all of those things? Because everyone cannot afford those Models. I think looking from the moon, you can we can very humbly take note of our insignificance and our irrelevance, and also note our the huge relevance we could have if we just are more present in the real space and time and just be present spatially is first from your body, you know, from your occupying your body and seeing what do you really need holistically for your well-being for your happiness and for your health this is what we wanted to do as architects so let's first of all remember and recall our goals and then all the things that don't fit with that we know it and we still do it so that is the part i i can't say anything because i don't want, i'm not don't want to take a moral view on this what i see
0: I like your approach. You're basically throwing us a lot of questions. If I had one or two questions for you, you had about 20 questions for us there. (laughs) So I I think that's the perfect way to answer what we're trying to uh, get to the bottom of on this episode. So uh, Anupama, thank you so much for your contribution.
6: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That was Indian architect Anupama Kundu there, bringing us to the end of episode two of From the Moon, in which we have tried to take stock of a divided planet. An impossible task, maybe, but one that might have at least given us some very different perspectives. One thing that seems very clear is that trying to separate social, cultural and political conflicts is futile. So an interlinked and intersectional approach is needed more than ever. On the next episode, we stay on the theme of what divides the planet, looking this time at frontiers, both visible and invisible. We'll be speaking to Afghan-Canadian artist Hangama Amiri and to Tiago Nogueira of the Instituto Moreira Salles in Sao Paulo, who will be telling us about the struggle of the Yanomami tribe in Brazil. We'll also hear from Lebanese actor and artist Rabi Mrué, as well as from architect and urban researcher Ippolito Pestellini-Laparelli. This podcast was brought to you by Triennale Milano. It was written and presented by me, David Pleasant, with production support by the Triennale Milano team. Sound editing and design was by Alex Portfelix and the theme music was created by John Arnold of Superdrama.